You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Empty. The Apostle Paul could not have said it any more clearly, any more straightforward, or any more concisely than that. If you do not believe that Christ is risen, if God does not raise the dead, and if He did not raise from the dead, rise from the dead, three days after His crucifixion, then your faith is empty, our preaching is vain, your faith is worthless and vain, you are still in your sins, and you are of all men most to be pitied. Because the resurrection of Christ is not just one element of what Christians believe that you can take or leave as you see fit. It's not just one tenant of a belief system that is labeled Christianity. It is the capstone in the arch of Christianity. It is the foundation of the church. It is the event upon which all other Christian doctrine, all other Christian belief, and all Christian practice is predicated. Everything finds its roots, everything finds its meaning and its purpose in the resurrection of Christ. It's not just some minimal doctrine that you can like or dislike, believe or not believe. Because the Apostle says, if He is not risen, your faith is in vain. It's empty. It's useless. And you're of all men most to be pitied. Why would the Apostle Paul say that? Well, if Christ is not risen, then there really is no valid object of faith, is there? What do you put your faith in? A dead God? What is it that you're believing in? A Savior whose body was eaten by worms? A Savior whose body was thrown to the dogs? A Savior whose body was put into the tomb and then decay and rotted into worm food? Is that what you've placed your faith in? You can't possibly hope to have salvation without believing in the resurrection of Christ because the Apostle Paul in Romans 10, 9, and 10 says that you must believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. Then you'll be saved. Without a risen Christ, you can't be saved. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you can't be saved. Without the resurrection of Christ, you have no valid object of faith. What are you putting your faith in? That's why the Apostle Paul says it's empty. It's useless. useless. But furthermore, without the resurrection of Christ, there's no forgiveness of sins. You're still in your sins, the Apostle Paul says. Why is that? Why can I not have forgiveness of sins without the resurrection of Christ? Because as Paul says in Romans chapter 4, He was delivered up for our transgressions and He was raised again for our justification. I can know that I my sins are forgiven and that I will stand in the presence of God righteous and holy and forgiven for all of eternity. How can I have that assurance? Because I believe that His death on the cross was sufficient to pay the price for my sin. I believe that God punished Christ on that cross in my place and that He took my judgment and bore my iniquity. How can I believe that? Because God has declared that sacrifice was sufficient by raising Him from the dead. And because He is risen, I can have assurance that my sins are forgiven because His sacrifice was sufficient. The atonement was made. The price was paid. And the transaction has been completed. How do I know that it was a good transaction? Because He is risen. And if He's not risen, 
no forgiveness of sins. But furthermore, friends, if the resurrection is not true, then you are of all men most to be pitied. Why is that? Why would you pray? Who are you praying to? Let me ask you, on what basis do you believe that God listens to a word you say? If you do not believe that Christ is risen and that He is seated at the right hand of the Father where He always lives to make intercession for you, then why pray? What confidence do you have that He cares for you one whit? What confidence do you have that you can approach Him or that He listens to anything you say? Why read your Bible? Because the Old Testament was written to show us that Christ was going to come, that He was going to suffer and die and rise again. All through the prophets, all through the Psalms it was predicted. And then the New Testament was written by men who saw Him alive after three days and said, we've seen the risen Christ. And they wrote the New Testament. So if Christ is not risen, then friends, go home and burn your Bible. This is a book of lies written by delusional liars. If Christ is not risen, you have no hope for anything future. There's no, nothing eternal. There's no reward. There's no punishment. And all of your holy living is useless because if Christ is not risen, He's certainly not the judge of all men. So why live holy and obedient lives if He's not risen? Uh, yet you come here Sunday after Sunday and you sing songs to a God who's too impotent to raise the dead and you listen to preaching from a book that lies about a resurrection and then you fellowship with a bunch of fools who are delusional enough to actually believe that God raised a man from the dead if indeed Christ is not risen. You are of all men most to be pitied because you waste your time in holy living you waste your time with your Bible. You waste your time in obedience. You waste your time in singing prayer and living righteous lives and fellowshipping with saints and getting together here on Sunday mornings and carrying on this charade. That's a depressing picture, is it not? Christ is not risen. There's no valid object for faith. There's no forgiveness of sins. And you're pathetic. That's what it boils down to. You're pathetic. You know that the resurrection of Christ is the thing that skeptics and critics and agnostics and atheists attack the most about the Christian faith because they know that that's the crux of the whole thing. That's the foundation of it all. That's the issue. Everything else stands or falls. They don't bother attacking the Trinity. They don't bother attacking the Incarnation. They don't bother attacking the miracles. They do attack those things once in a while, but those are really peripheral issues. Anything you watch today or this weekend that's put on by PBS or anything you read from Time Magazine, anything on television will seek to call into doubt, to call into question the historicity and the veracity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why do they always attack that? You know why they attack that? Because they know that everything else stands or falls on that one thing. Either Christ is risen or He is not. And if He is not then all of Christianity is meaningless. All of it is useless. But if He is, if He is, then there are some serious, eternal consequences. And then you know there are pastors today who are standing in pulpits as I'm speaking to you who are telling their congregations that it really doesn't matter whether Christ rose from the dead or didn't rise from the dead. All that's really important is that we believe in our heart that He's alive to us and that you can be a good Christian and not believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead in His own body. That's hogwash. It's the crux of all of Christianity. And it is the crux, it was the foundation, it was the sum and substance 
of all of the early churches preaching, proclamation, witnessing, evangelism, everything that they did rested upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 13. We've spent the last two weeks going through a sermon that Paul delivered in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. It's in Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 16. The Apostle Paul stands up and he begins to preach and he gives this long sermon where Christ is the center of the sermon. And the Apostle Paul is really driving at three things. Two weeks ago we looked at how Christ is the culmination of history. That in Christ all of history is culminated. Then Paul moves on to show us that in Christ... All of prophecy is fulfilled. And last week we saw how the death of Christ was a fulfillment of prophecy. And today we're going to look at how the resurrection of Christ is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So I want you to read with me in Acts chapter 13. We're going to begin at verse 26. We're going to cover those few verses that we looked at last week. And then we'll read our text for this morning. Verse 26. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God... To us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither Him nor the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning Him. And though they found no ground for putting Him to death, they asked Pilate that He be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning Him, they took Him down from the cross and laid Him in a tomb. But God raised Him from the dead." And for many days He appeared to those who came up with Him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now His witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that He raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, and now He's quoting Psalm 2, You are My Son, today I have begotten You. And as for the fact that He raised Him up from the dead no longer to return to decay, He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, He also says in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers, and he underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay." The Apostle Paul is trying to convince these Jews that not only is the death of their Messiah a fulfillment of their Old Testament prophets and all that the prophets predicted and foretold, but also that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is in itself also a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And the Apostle Paul really focuses in on three things that I want you to look at this morning. The first is that the resurrection of Christ was witnessed by people. The Apostle Paul says in verse 30, but God raised Him from the dead. Now that's either true or it is false, but it's not both. And it's not partially true that God raised Him in our hearts. And it's not partially false that He was raised, but it was more as a spirit creature, really, than physically or in His body. But God raised Him from the dead. Now, if that's a true statement, you and I might expect there to be some verification of that. Wouldn't we? If an event like that actually happened, we might expect there to be some circumstantial evidence We might expect, for instance, that there would be an empty tomb. We might expect, for instance, that the stone would be rolled away from the tomb. We might expect in a situation like that that the soldiers would flee the scene and that they would be terrified. And we might even expect to see some, not just circumstantial evidence, but some eyewitnesses to it. We might expect to see or hear from people who said, we seen Him. I was there. I handled Him. I saw Him. 
It's real. We ate with Him. We talked with Him. We know He's risen because we are witnesses. Now they knew He was dead. They put Him on that cross. They drove nails through His hands, through His feet, the spear in His side. The Roman soldiers who executed Him verified His death. Pilate, who was asked for the body, sent to verify that His death. The soldiers who were there all saw that He was dead. Everybody at the foot of the cross, they knew what dead people looked like. They saw Him. They saw that He was dead. They took His dead body down from the cross and they wrapped it in in grave clothes and they laid it in a tomb and they rolled that stone against the, the opening of the tomb and then they put a Roman seal across it and they stationed a Roman guard, several guards there at the tomb. And then after three days, the tomb was empty. And the stone rolled away and the guards fled. And the angel appeared. And when they came, the angel said, He is risen, just as He said. Don't let it surprise you. He predicted that it would happen. The Old Testament predicted that it would happen. He promised that He would do it. And He has done it. He's risen, just as He said. And then there's the appearances. If you're a skeptic or an agnostic and you don't believe that Christ is risen, then the appearances really got to throw you for a loop. First to Cephas, John, the twelve, the apostles, once with Thomas absent, once with Thomas present. And, and listen, these people were not predisposed to believe. Do you remember what Thomas said? Unless I see in his hands the nail marks, and unless I put my hand into his side where that spear went in, I will not believe. They were not predisposed to believe. But when they saw Him, and He presented Himself alive with many convincing proofs, as Luke says in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, over the course of 40 days, meeting with them and talking with them and teaching the things concerning Himself and the kingdom of God, showing them His hands, showing them His feet and the wounds in His side, alive, they were convinced. By the evidence, they were convinced. And the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, over 500 brethren saw Him at one time. Now, if I were to bring those 500 brethren in here, if that were possible, and we were to put them on a witness stand and have each of them give five, win- five minutes of eyewitness testimony as to what they saw, we would have over 40 hours of eyewitness testimony in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, just among those 500. Not including the apostles, not including Paul, not including the women who saw Him. 40 hours of eyewitness testimony. We saw Him alive after three days. That's pretty substantial, isn't it? You've probably never heard of Sir Lionel Lucku. He's called the Perry Mason of the Caribbean. He was a, a lawyer, a defense attorney, and he actually is listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the most successful defense attorney ever. He successfully argued 245 murder defense trials in a row. 245 successful murder defense trials. That's why he's called the Perry Mason of the Caribbean. Very famous, very wealthy, very well known in his day. He died here just recently. The writers of the TV show Perry Mason, they actually, after 70 successful trials, they had Perry Mason lose one because they said nobody would ever believe that somebody could be that successful. Sir Lionel Luck who was. 245 consecutive successful murder defense trials. At the age of 63, after retiring from practice and having been a lawyer for all of those years, very wealthy, very famous, very well-known, and very empty. And Sir Lionel turned his attention to the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
and the evidence that bears upon it. And he examined it from a lawyer's perspective. And here is what he said. I have spent more than 42 years as a defense lawyer in many parts of the world. And I say unequivocally, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leave absolutely no room for doubt. And he became convinced in his old age that Jesus Christ is who he said he was, that he died and that he rose again. And that's one trial he could never, never have accurately defended to try and prove that Jesus Christ is not risen. Compelled by the evidence. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was witnessed by people. Second, the Apostle Paul tells us that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the heart of Gospel preaching. Look at verse 31. For many days He appeared to those who came up with Him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now His witnesses to, to the people. Verse 32, And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. This is the sum and substance of my preaching, the Apostle Paul says. This is what I've been driving at. All of the Old Testament prophets, the whole message about Christ culminating history and fulfilling the prophets, all of it boils up in this. That God has fulfilled the promise that He made to our fathers. And this is the sum and substance of Gospel preaching. That He died, that He was buried, and that He rose again. That's the Gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, I declare to you the Gospel that I preached, that Christ was crucified, that He was buried again, that He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. The apostles didn't preach messages about how to make your family better. The apostles didn't preach messages about how to make your bank account fatter. They didn't preach any kind of self-help, pseudo-Christian, feel-good messages on the topics or the ideas of the day. You know what they preached? Christ crucified, buried, and risen again. That was their message. That's the good news. Because without the resurrection of Christ, there is no good news. God loves you. Is that good news? No, it's not good news. Not without the resurrection of Christ, it's not good news. Sorry to disappoint you. God loves you. That's not good news without the resurrection. God loves me, but He's impotent to save me? He can do all of His best, but He can't save me? Now, God loves you and He sent His Son to die for you. Is that good news? Not without the resurrection of Christ, it's not. All of His best intentions to save me, sent His Son, died on a cross, and rotted in a grave. That's not good news. God loves me. He sent His Son to die in my place. And He rose again the third day. That's good news. That's the Gospel. That's what we preach. That's the Lord that we worship. Not a Jesus on a cross, but a risen and exalted and ascended Christ. That's our Lord. That's the good news. It's the heart and the substance of Gospel preaching. Third, not only was it witnessed by people, and not only is it the heart of the Gospel preaching, but third, look what the Apostle Paul tells us. It is a fulfillment of the promise. Verse 33, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that He raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second Psalm. Now the Apostle Paul is going to quote from three places in the Old Testament. He's going to quote from one of those places. You'll see it in verse 33. He quotes from Psalm 2 in verse 33. In verse 34, he quotes from Isaiah 55 verse 3. And then in verse 35, he quotes from Psalm 16 verse 10. So Psalm 2 verse 7 Psalm, Isaiah 55 verse 3 and Psalm 16 verse 10. And he's building a case. And he's quoting, all three of these have to do with David. They're promises made to David. 
Because as you'll see at the end, he wraps it up by talking about how David could not have fulfilled those promises and how those promises could not have been fulfilled in David's day. And earlier in the sermon, back when we talked about how Christ is the culmination of history, the Apostle Paul reminded them that he sent the Savior through David. So he's zeroing in on two Psalms that David wrote and a passage in Isaiah 55, verse 3, that was spoke of a covenant that God made with David. Now first is Psalm 2. Verse 7, look at verse uh, 33 where the Apostle quotes it. It's also written in the second Psalm, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. You say, what does that have to do with resurrection? That's a good question, and I'm glad you asked. Today you are my Son, today, or to, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Psalm 2. It's a Messianic Psalm. All the Jews understood, and we understand today that when David wrote Psalm 2, he was not speaking of himself, he was not speaking of his immediate son, He was looking and speaking of a time when God would say to one of His descendants, You are My Son. And today I have begotten you, or literally brought you forth. And so the Apostle Paul says David was speaking of the resurrection. When he was literally declared to be the Son of God with power by resurrection from the dead. Romans 1.4 How do we know that Christ is the Son of God? Because God has raised Him from the dead and He has testified to us and to all men This is my son, today I have begotten you. It's a coronation psalm. The psalm speaks of of the king who would come from David's line, who would sit on David's throne. And it was a psalm that was sung looking forward to that day when God would send His Messiah. That Messiah would be son of David and son of God. And God would say to him, you're my son, I've brought you forth. And sit him on the throne. So what does being begotten have to do with resurrection? The Apostle is arguing David was looking forward to a day when God would declare him to be the Son of God by bringing him forth. Bringing him forth literally from the grave. But the Apostle Paul builds his argument further. Isaiah 55, verse 3. Look at verse 35. Therefore, he also says, sorry, verse 34. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he's spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. That's a quotation from Isaiah 55, verse 3, which says, Listen, that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies that were shown to David. That's a passage that has to do with God's promise to David. It was an eternal covenant. And Isaiah was reminding the people, God is going to keep His word with David. What was the word that God gave to David? What was it that the Lord had promised to David? 2 Samuel Chapter 7, the Lord said of David, My loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. That's the promise to David. I'm going to send forth from you a descendant who will establish your throne and your kingdom forever. And he will sit on the throne and he will rule forever. Now how can that possibly happen? How can you have a king who sits on the throne and lives forever and never dies who is a descendant of David? How could that come to pass? Furthermore, how could it come to pass from a dead Messiah? How does a dead Messiah, a dead Jesus, become the channel through which God would pour out the blessing and fulfill to David the promise that I will establish your throne and I will give to you a kingdom and I will set one of your descendants upon it and he will reign forever? How could that happen? Any descendant of David must have to die, right? Well, not if God raised him from the dead, never to suffer decay again. Then God could exalt him and say to him, You are my son.
Today I have begotten you. He could put him on David's throne and he will reign forever, never again subject to decay. The Apostle Paul argues that the promises which were given to David required, required that his son be raised again. Otherwise, he couldn't reign forever and ever without suffering decay. But further, he quotes even more specifically, Psalm 16, verse 10. He's building his case. Psalm 16, verse 10 says, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. That was written by David. And the Apostle Paul quotes that in verse 35. He also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. It's the same psalm that Peter quoted on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And here's what Peter said. Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. He quotes from that psalm, and then Peter says this. I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he has both died and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and he knew that God had sworn to him, with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, David looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up to which we are all witnesses. Peter sounds a lot like Paul, doesn't he? He quotes the psalm, and then Paul goes on to say, we know of David that he died, that he was buried, and that he decayed. So David must not have been speaking of himself, David, therefore, must have been speaking prophetically to Christ. And as Peter said, David knew that God had sworn to him, I will seat one of your descendants on your throne, and he will reign forever. Therefore, David looked ahead and spoke not of his own decay, but he spoke of the Holy One. And Paul says, it is he who has fulfilled all of these prophecies. So now that you understand the quotations and their context, put all of Paul's argument together and it goes like this. There was a descendant that was promised to David of whom God could say, you are my son. He was son of God and son of David and God promised of him, I'll bring you forth. Why did God do that? Because he was going to seat that descendant on the throne of David, fulfilling his covenant to David and that throne would be established and that kingdom would be established forever. And it required a risen Messiah, a king who would no longer be subject to decay. Who is that one? The Apostle Paul says, The one who David said will not suffer decay must be Christ because He's risen. And so David is given all of the messianic credentials for the Messiah. All of His crucifixion, His burial, and His resurrection, all of it a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. God has kept His Word. He promised, I'll raise Him from the dead. And He has done it. Now there are some other promises that are attached to the resurrection of Christ in Scripture, and I want you to be aware of what they are. The first one is that there is a promise of judgment. A promise of judgment to come. John chapter 5, Jesus said this in the context of speaking of His own ability to give life to Himself. Jesus said, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and they will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Jesus said there is coming a day when all men everywhere will hear My voice and there will be a resurrection and they will all stand before Me and I will judge them. And some men will be raised to eternal life 
and some men will be raised to eternal damnation. But there will be a resurrection of all men. And every one of us will stand in the presence of Christ, the risen Lord, either as your Savior or as your judge. But you'll stand before Him. Either as your Savior or as your judge. But you will stand in His presence. And Jesus said, everyone will hear my voice and they'll come forth. And just as he said to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. At the end of time, my friends, we're all going to hear his voice and we're all going to come forth. It's appointed unto man once to die and after this, the judgment. Now, do you want proof that there's going to be a judgment? The proof that there's going to be a judgment is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said in Acts chapter 17 that God overlooked the times of ignorance, but now He commands all men everywhere to repent. Because God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed. That's Christ. And then Paul says He has given proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Raising Him from the dead. Do you want proof that there is a judgment to come? It's the resurrection of Christ. The empty tomb. Because Christ said... The Father has committed all judgment to Me. And He rose from the dead. That's your proof that there's a judgment coming. So what am I to do? Well, there's a second promise. That's the promise of salvation from the judgment which is to come. The promise of the coming judgment is given in the context of resurrection several times in the New Testament. Likewise also is the promise of salvation. John chapter 11, at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus said, If you believe in Me, you have eternal life. I am the resurrection and the life. And if you believe in Me, you'll never perish. Never perish. And though you may die, you'll live. And whoever lives and believes in Me shall live forever. That's the promise. Because He is risen, I can have salvation. Because He is risen, there is judgment. And because He is risen, there is salvation. Without the resurrection, there's no judgment, friends. Eat. Sleep and be merry, for tomorrow you die. But if He's risen, there's judgment. And there is salvation to all those who have placed their faith in Christ, in Christ alone, for eternal life. See, friends, He's my sin-bearer. He died in my place, and God raised Him from the dead to show to me and to all men that His sacrifice is sufficient to atone for the sins of all people who will place their faith in Christ. He has paid the price for everyone who will believe in Him. And now you have a choice to make. Will you stand before Him as your judge? Or will you stand before Him as your Savior? And you say, I'll make that choice later. I'm not going to make that choice today. You've already made that choice. You choose judgment. If you turn from Christ, if you reject Him, if you will not place your faith in Him and flee to Him as your Savior from the wrath which is to come, then you will perish with your sins for all of eternity. As Charles Spurgeon said, if Christ dying is not your life, Christ living shall be your death. If Christ on the cross does not save you, Christ on the throne shall damn you. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank You for the salvation that's in Christ. And I ask, Lord, that You would convict and convince each one of us that is here, saved or not, of the reality of the resurrection. And for those who have never placed their faith in Christ and turned to Him for salvation, I pray, God, that You would save them today and that You, by Your grace, would reach down and show to us how much we need You and the resurrection of Christ. We thank You for the glorious truth that He has risen, just as He said. His death fulfilled prophecy. His resurrection fulfilled prophecy. 
And we are grateful, God, that you have provided for us a Savior. And not just a Savior who loves us. And not just a Savior who died. But a Savior who died, was buried, and rose again the third day victorious. We praise you in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.